Kaunas and Derry, Londonderry are both second cities, each at an edge of Europe with a contested border, and home to CCA and Kaunas Artist House, two arts organisations and partners, along with the Lithuanian Cultural Institute, in DEMO, a reciprocal residency programme. Welcome to this latest edition of our series of Roundtable podcasts, where we invite artists to have a conversation. I'm Catherine Hemmelwright, Director of the Centre of Contemporary Art, Derry Londonderry, and I'm joined by artists Mark Buckridge, Ona Yudsjute and Rebna Hörnleifstotter. In February 2022, Mark, based in NI, and Ona, based in Lithuania, each spent time on the other side of Europe, respectively. DEMO is short for Decoding Modernity, and this programme was established with a biennial model to ensure we have dialogue spanning our continent, an opportunity for exchange and experience embedded in our calendar, and this year is part of Kaunas 2022 European Capital of Culture. The first edition took place in 2020, and you can listen to a conversation between the artists in residence, Ginta Regina, Neve Shauna Meehan, with Mikhail Karekis in our earlier roundtable podcast. But today we talk to our 2022 demo artist, Mark and Honor, and our guest, Rebna. We're going to have a conversation about making work, residencies, looking back, viewing the past through materials, what's real, what's imagined, readings, and alternative readings of place. But first, a brief introduction to the artists. Mark Buckridge was born in Dublin and lives and works in Belfast with a practice encompassing performance, installation, text, and sound. Mark studied in Amsterdam with an MFA from the Sandberg Institute and has exhibited across Ireland, the UK and the Netherlands. Anna Yutjuta is based in Vilnius, where she graduated from the Academy of Arts with MA in Sculpture. She's participated in artist residencies internationally, including most recently in Germany, and works across sculpture, installation and moving image. And a fragility and careful manipulation of materials is often apparent in her work. Rebna Hoon Leifstotir was born in Iceland and is currently based in Brussels. She works with sculpture, text and performance and co-runs The Tale, an exhibition space in Brussels. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you to our supporters who made this roundtable possible. The Lithuanian Cultural Institute, Arts Council of Northern Ireland, Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Art Fund. So when... I spoke to Mark and Honor about setting up our roundtable. Uh, they invited you, Rebna, to join us. And I think you had you had a question about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just a bit surprised, or like I wondered how they had found me. Actually, my first kind of response was that I was just coming from Basel. And I was like, oh my God, was I speaking to someone that I like have forgotten now? Like, who was I talking to? What was I talking about? But yeah, so I was just curious about how, how they found me and why they wanted to have a conversation. Um, I think that we just found your practice quite exciting. And no, you didn't speak to us in Basel or nowhere else before now. So we just like found you in the abyss of internet. But yeah, somehow as mine and Mark's practices are quite different from the first glance, but then you, you seem to interact with kind of both fields in a way. So we thought that it could be really nice to have someone to channel through, but also as we got to know each other quite randomly, this is also the way just to, to get to know someone. So yeah, something like that. Cool, that's cool. <laughs> So you all use found materials in your sculptural work. Do you find you are drawn to particular materials time and again? And I'd love to hear your different experiences about this. Mark, perhaps perhaps you could tell us first of all. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that. Like, I really don't. Like, it's quite a natural thing, I suppose, interacting with materials. Um, it's a very physical thing. It's like listening to music or when you're writing music, when you know what you want you like drum sound you like that particular hard percussion or you like that bass line that's really nice and you go with your instinct and your gut and it feels right so yeah I just work whatever feels right really I don't know if that answers the question but yeah well in the exhibition that you made following the residency you've got things from your past so you've got uh, lyrics and set lists for sort of draft set lists and a sort of small toy uh, 
dinosaur they're all objects from your sort of recent past so is is that something you've done before or is this new for your current practice no well I always uh, draw in studio and uh, I collect a lot of material whether it's uh, drawings or you know make videos and stuff and record sounds and it's just this layering of materials I suppose I haven't really worked with textiles as much as I have in this show but drawings for sure and yeah I would collect objects around from different areas um, from secondhand shops and around the place so they're kind of sitting in studio and it seemed right to use them within this context and the ideas I was coming up with this show. Oh no, in a very different way, you're using materials that you find around you, but you, uh, rather than presenting them as is, you manipulate them, don't you? For me, I see materials, all materials that I come across as somehow leftovers of something else, because every item is like an element of something else in a way. I see everything so industrialized, so whenever I'm like a you know, a single person not being part of any kind of factory life can come across a material it's somehow left behind. And, you know, everything, everything is an element of something else. Like a screw is a part of the furniture. Part of the furniture is like it becomes a room, a house, a street, a village, you know, etc. So when I can touch upon some material, I feel like, okay, it's somehow an outlet in a way and then I like to find new ways for it like somehow new existence grounds but maybe it also comes from my experience as I come from a family of carpenters so it's always something you know what is the right material that is supposed to become a piece of furniture and what is like no longer somehow quite usable for that so then I think that I'm always attracted to neglected material somehow and finding somewhat of a new ways because you know as much as a very popular and well-behaved material tells so much about our civilization or the ways we, we do, it's the same with the materials that do not fit it. Somehow, you know, the discounted colors in a construction store. It's so interesting why like a lime green color is somehow on the 40% off rack. And I find that in my installation, it's always the ones that were somehow discounted, left over, or like, you know, like with the veneers, they were cutoffs of some veneers that were used for the veneers, I mean, from the CCA show. So yeah, I think that I see them as somehow leftovers and that's how I deal with them. Yeah. And not only with, you know, raw materials, but also with the, within items like a secondhand shop or a flea market. Sometimes I'm really interested why these objects didn't make it. And, and this is how we start together with them. Yeah. I like this sort of, I don't know, the fatality of it. They, did, they didn't make it. <laughs> they didn't make it. But yeah, that's so true, you know. But then they have this new life um, through your positioning of them, through their interlacing and yeah. so and much more. Sometimes you have this kind of revelations of two completely different materials, but they have some something in common, like, you know, a paint and a textile, and they both were on a discounted shelf. And from the first glance, you wouldn't see anything in common, but then you start looking at them or combining them and they become somehow in this kind of um, discounted shelter. Rebna, do you have a similar approach or what is what is your tactic for materials? Um, I really must agree with uh, what Ona was saying or relate to what Ona was saying about leftover materials or like all materials being kind of left or elements of something else. I feel like in the projects that I'm currently doing, I only use these kind of, um, yeah, I only gather material in like in secondhand shops or buy them online or at markets. Like Brussels has great markets. Like you walk through them and you feel like you're just going through centuries of trash that have probably like, you know, been at markets, goes to someone's home, been at markets again, you know, there's this whole circulation. So I kind of like that approach to these objects. And the project that I currently have is the end object is a handbag or is like a usable, wearable object that then someone else will use. So I think it's like, it's kind of a fast practice. So I collect all this material quite fast. I assemble them quite fast. It's like almost like fast creative uh, processes. And then I want them to be out again. So it's kind of like I'm gathering, but they don't stay with me. I'm not collecting anything. Like it's more like 
it's gathering to give out again. And I really also connect with what you were saying, Ona, about like the curiosity about the right and wrong materials. Because you said you come from a family of carpenters. So there's like, there's a rule of what is right and what is wrong, maybe that I understand it right. I think I also like went through, like I don't come from a family of craftsmen, but I think my mom had very strong opinions on what colors were good and what colors were bad. So like light purple and light blue and these colors would be very bad. I had like a period in my life where I was very curious about these colors. I would, I mean, these would also maybe be discount colors because they like, no one really likes them except like, you know, grandmas that are buying something for babies. So I would be like, oh, what's this color? How can I use it? Oh, how exciting, you know? Like, do you, I don't know, did you have this rebellious moments uh, against, or maybe it's like in the past or something against, not against, but like regarding your family and your family craft? Well, my dad was, he was also like a punk carpenter because my grandfather, he was very much like a very well craftsman and he knew how to do things and they really fit in and he was popular. And my dad, he was making, like he, I think he already rebelled and I, I'm still on a team dad somehow in this sense so we both have this kind of strange attraction towards you know going to a flea market in in a countryside of Lithuania and then finding some broken plate and then fixing it and this this kind of thing is I don't know it's like healing but also I think that today there are so many objects so sometimes it's so easy to decide just to take the cheapest one you know and to take the one because if you start choosing, then it's endless. I remember how our our neighbors, they painted the house in this really acidic lime green. And my father said, oh my God, I know why they did it because it was on a discount, this color. And we, we both agreed that it doesn't matter the look of the color just helps you decide, you know, because if you need to choose from the hundred of colors, then it becomes a little bit mad sometimes, you know? So sometimes it's just so easy, but, uh, but yeah, I think that it's somehow for me, it's like the knowledge of civilization. Like I was in a construction store and I saw that there's a bunch of screws 50% off. And then I understand that they probably don't screw something well. And that's exciting, you know, then you, you start to think about this whole system of making up things and how there are so many elements to make some something very simple. But you know, like you have these machines that like I mean it's 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 crazy I when I think about industry it makes me I don't know very curious and scared at the same time so I guess this is my way of dealing with it like eight taking some end product and just dismantling it to the moment where I can at least understand it somehow but uh, tell me tell me more about those bags you make I'm actually uh, very interested in this kind of how, how do you make them do they come from completely scratch or do you find a bag and then add something and we mostly find the bag. So I work with my friend uh, Annie Ackerman, is her name, also an artist. And we mostly find the bags. Like we used to, like in the beginning, we would find them at flea markets and secondhand stores. But now we moved more online. And mm. then we take them apart, put them back together and make them into something, something else than they were in the beginning. And when you said that you like to bring them back to the streets, like to the market, how, how do you do it? Do you just sell them as bags? Like right now, we've been selling them like online, mostly to friends, just through Instagram. Mm -hmm. So like I've, in the beginning, I would think about them as bags, but now we've been invited to exhibit them. So then it's also fun to think about them as more sculptures or like they can be mm -hmm. sculptures like like these things so and I'm not sure how they will be sold then because now what we've been doing is selling them quite affordably because yeah. that's what our friends can buy yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's not no, like it's and then they can become real statement bags you know with the help of art institutions they can compete with Hermes and things like that yeah because I, I also think if the bag is a sculpture or like does it have similar qualities to it? In a way, it does, like a statement object, like a person says something about it. But I think I am more interested in the fact that it's like a bag hides something inside, you know, like like an artwork in a way, like in this kind of modernistic approach, like it, it has something else than it really brings out from the first glance. So I think it's a very ironic analog to the art world somehow, like a vessel or something so yeah yeah I was quite drawn to your bags actually it made me laugh and made me curious and all those things 
And leading on from family traits or family skills, Mark, I wanted to ask you, is your family musical? Because music plays such a crucial role in your practice. Where did it start for you? Um, yeah, my mom is a, was a music teacher for I think 37 years in an all-girls school, um, secondary school in Ireland. And I kind of grew up with music in the house, you know, with a piano and all that kind of stuff. And uh, basically I started learning early on, but then I got in trouble because um, a teacher said to my mom that Mark wasn't at traditional music lessons, so he was out playing football even though I'm not really a big fan of football anymore so yeah I kind of rebelled against it all I was no interest in it for a while so then I eventually came back to it and it seems to be that is this kind of teenage years that's inspired a lot of my interest in aesthetics so I grew up with it yeah was it similar for you Rebna growing up with music not at all <laughs> <laughs> no one in my family has played yeah my sister did she played like a clarinet or something nice. you know we're very very we don't have a lot of music talent there's a performance element to your practice and what led to you pursuing that route i think it started with like other people asking me to perform for them so it was never really my intention but i happened to often be the person that wasn't necessarily the first choice but someone would call me and ask me to be like oh we need someone to like do this and this on stage and I would be like yeah sure yeah sure you know once I was called like can you jump in a taxi right now and I was like okay and I jumped in a taxi and then I like was at like the entrance of a boat and (laughs) on the boat it was like part of the outside program of like Berlin Biennale 2009 what was it 2016 or something and I came there on the boat and it was like five minutes before the performance I was like okay this cue comes and you jump on the stage and you have to strangle this person and I was like okay okay so like it's just like one thing leading to another it was almost becoming like my money job was to perform for other people but I was doing sculptures and then at some point I just thought like hey I actually feel quite comfortable doing this and I was also writing more and more so I started to like read my own writing and uh yeah, like, I mean, kind of like, I knew that I had, didn't have any knowledge about movements. I don't have any choreographical background, but like, that's also sometimes where like collaboration comes in good place where you'd like, you have conversations or collaborate with other people and understand these things that you're missing. So yeah, it comes maybe something from that. But I was like, a, I was an athlete when I was younger. So I think that maybe helps with like, just knowing your body, knowing how you like, how to work with it in some sense yeah it looks like there's a real physicality to your work so how you yeah how how limbs fit together for starters so it seems to really fit in and is there something about the nature of performance that has then informed your sculptural work probably yeah uh, I mean like if I'm doing handbags now that are worn by other people it must be Mark, for you, there's, uh, you have a very deliberate approach to your performances. It's like, right, the performance begins, for example, in CCA, when uh, your assistant, uh, which was me in one case, uh, brings you the costume. And that's sort of the starting point of the performance. What is your approach to that? Can, and also, I really want to know more about uh, the style of singing that you used for four ballads as well. Well, in that case, it's quite practical, like mostly all of the time it's functional, practical and with aesthetics involved. In that particular scenario, I didn't really want to be, the costume's quite hard to get on, like it's, you know, it's quite difficult uh, and I don't want to be taking off my clothes in front of everyone. I've From the past, I've learned from bad performances that it becomes part of the performance, so it can really be very staged. So if I'm putting on the costume in front of everyone, it will bring a lot of things up. So um, that's why it's more simple. And yeah, but what was the other question there? The style of singing that you use. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a Shanno singing. It's a traditional Irish singing. And uh, it's predominantly, you know, where emotion takes place over skill. And, you know, back in the day, they used to say at uh, parties or when you're having drinks or you're trying to entertain they would say Aberauron which in Irish says it means uh, you know tell me a story you know tell me a song like so 
I, I probably um, reacted against the work I made in Amsterdam, the opera, which was quite big and there's a lot of music and it was quite overwhelming with the libretto and all that. So I wanted to go back to the very start of just someone with their voice in a room showing emotion to other people. And yeah, it's very democratic. Like it doesn't cost anything to tell a story or sing a song. So, um, but yeah, I worked with a, a Irish traditional singer called Dominic Magula Breda for a few months. And I went to his house in North Belfast and I rehearsed with him, learned some Irish songs. And then I wrote my own one in reaction to it. Yeah. So for anybody who hasn't heard it, it's a series of verses about looking back to your 20s and sort of the incidental things like what shoes people are wearing and different slightly more monumental moments or classically monumental moments. Did you go through a really stringent writing process to get to those or was it all sort of quite stream of consciousness? I was like a on Google Drive, just writing all the time, particularly in Kaunas and Lithuania. And I met with musicians over there and I wrote what I was in this, you know, cafes and stuff. But I accumulate a lot of material in general, whether it is like physical material or, you know, digital. But the real work starts when you try to edit all that material. So I had like pages and pages of diaries and like on Google Drive and I was trying to make sense of it all. And then then it's very much about fitting into the sound and then, you know, how long the slurring the words are, you know, or the kind of sharpness of a particular word. So, yeah, it's a lot of editing, really. So that's how that kind of happens. I have a question. I was kind of curious about when I was reading about the show of this like kind of revisiting the 20s or being in your 30s and looking back at your 20s. Like I'm I'm turning 30 next week. So I've been <laughs> having a lot of thoughts about yeah. yeah, this about this like moment in life and like what these changes are. And I've also been seeing a lot of people again that I haven't seen in the pandemic. So like it's maybe been four years or something that you're seeing people and a lot of people are turning 30. So I'm always like watching like what has changed, what is staying the same, like these elements. So I was just wondering what made you go on this path of looking back and not doing it on a personal internal level, but doing mm. it with your as a practice and like sharing it with other people. Yeah, I think it was kind of, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, when I turned 30, it wasn't a thing for me. I was just like, I feel, you know, better than I did when I was 20 because um, my identity was quite, I was unsure of myself a lot. You know, I was trying to fit in with a lot of people. But I think one of the few things I'm hopeful about is that this idea of falling apart. You're not caring anymore about anything, you know, or what clothes I wear. And I know who I am more. But uh, it seems to me that, it was a very natural thing. You know, I, I generally, you know, don't look back at all. And I'm always looking forward. I never have in my practice. And it was kind of like a strange thing to do. And it's quite an emotional thing to do to confront that. And it, it felt like I was saying goodbye to a certain part of my life, just in the artwork that I wanted to acknowledge it and say, you know, thank you. I'm very grateful to be still making art because a lot of my friends haven't got that chance and I'm very privileged to be able to still do it and I kind of wanted to capture all that joy of material and sound and photographs that makes me feel alive and it's just seemed natural this correlation between materiality and the ready-made objects found and the lyrics seem to be reflecting it I think it's also just it's something that has been thought about in my head a lot and a lot of the lyrics come from lived experience and so it's yeah, a very reflective time, I think, that I was going through. And uh, yeah, I was like in the lyrics in the first verse, it's about being really in a park in Fondel Park in Amsterdam, where we were just sitting in a public space, you know, reflecting. And there's no need for production. There's no outcomes that we're doing. We're just sitting there watching the world go by. And uh, I think of that time as a precious time, you know, of just nothing was there something about spending the time on the residency that helped reflection or was this in brewing anyway? Um, like, yeah, like, yeah, it, it didn't, it didn't uh, 
when I turned 30, uh, didn't, <laughs> it was, you know, it never came into my head. And I've, and then the question is like, why does it become an artwork? And, you know, why can't you just have a conversation with a friend? But it's just what I was feeling at the time, you know, and interested in. And maybe it was the imagery I was attracted to. And I'm very interested in youth and subcultures and music and that idea of just this rebelliousness and not looking to the future and maybe that energy I was attracted to, you know. But the Countess thing, um, yeah, it was, it was a very distilled um, a time on my own. Um, so it obviously helped uh, me write a lot. So you mentioned that you've collaborated and the costume was made by a friend of yours in London. With the collaborations that you do, are they do they arise through conversation or is it I need this thing and I know who can make it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, again, it's practical. It's like, I need to wear, like for the context and the conceptuality, I would like a costume for this show. And then I'm like, who can I work with? And who do I find interesting? And their energy really interesting. And I want to be around. And my friend Rory in London is a good friend of mine, going back a lot, long time. And he's never made a costume in his life. So, but it wasn't, I knew his energy was right. And I think that's important for me. It's like the right energy. It's like when I'm working with musicians, it's like, it's not about the skill. It's about, can I have a drink with them? And do we have interesting ideas? So it, it, it's a lot to do with friendship as well, the collaborations and this trust and being able to be vulnerable with each other and to uh, be able to tell each other that you don't like the what's happening and like not get, you know, feel personally it's about the work being the right work in the end and uh, it was a really enjoyable time making the costume in London and a uh, natural very natural process because uh, you know uh, when you trust someone's aesthetic you don't have to worry as much. There are so many nice connections in the exhibition that it, because it wasn't selected as a curated show it's two solo shows but there just happened to be these really lovely threads that run through um <laughs> including textiles literally. And, <laughs> literally on uh the conversations you had with the factory girls in Derry ended up being something really special that fed into your the film work that's in the show could you tell us a bit about that well, so basically, Derry was run by shirt factories, shirt and pyjama factories, like, I don't know, uh, some years ago, it was 70 factories around the town, and it was the leading industry in Europe and the Western world of shirt making. It's no longer there, because all that moved to Asia, but the people who used to make it are still there. And as I am interested in how things are made, I was quite curious to meet them. And I think that it changed so much of my perception, like about a thing that's factory made, because you meet a person who is putting all the skill and love to it. And then I say, and what about the conditions, you know? And then they say, oh, we loved it there. Like it was the home and it was the place where we built community and where we shared skill. And it was quite precious and special. And they showed me some of the shirts they were making because yeah they still have some stolen bits and <laughs> taken bits and things and you know like the explanation of how a sleeve is made is totally I don't know like it's a yeah like a knowledge of civilization like why the sleeve is made like this and then you hear the whole the whole very logical explanation about actually a human body and I don't know for me it was really interesting to get to know some things that I use daily you know but I don't know so much about it and how the ladies were you know skilled to do just one precise thing like to sew a sleeve on and how disappointed in the beginning they were because they said we thought that we learned to make shirts but we just know how to sew a collar or do a thing but then you know like it was quite interesting I also found so much parallel in other skillfulness and also deskilling and things like that what what you do when you are been sewing collar of a shirt for 30 years and you still miss it daily which is also something that was quite surprising to me and now when Mark is talking about having a skill or not having a skill that's also very interesting like for example with singing I have no skill whatsoever like deeply unskilled I can't even clap to the rhythm I I tried to go to musical school and they were like okay maybe <laughs> maybe that's not the best idea and a friend of mine just did a performance with unskilled singers in a singing in a nettle field and not field but like a 
metal kind of garden in, in, in Paris. And I found it so liberating for a person who is non-skilled, you know, in, in this kind of kind of sense. So that's also interesting, you know, how today we we somehow somehow being the skilled becomes a little bit of a value. Like you can look at a things without this kind of pressure of making them in a proper learned way. But not only in arts, I guess, like in fashion too. So yeah. I feel like that's almost like all you have out of art school is to be de-skilled in so many things yeah yeah yeah. i totally agree daily what what is it you have when Mm. you're out in the world yeah yeah. it's kind of a bit of a crisis after (laughs) you 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 come out and you're realizing you know what skill did i learn but then it becomes uh, something that is a power as well but some people yeah don't find out that it actually is something they can use yeah probably use is also a complicated <laughs> word uses the yeah yeah use the good word for that mm. yeah yeah that's so true but then is it about emotion you know with the people you know making those textiles there the shirts and that or is it about the process and the time together and that community for that yeah and i also think this is how I see it because I can't see it any other way. They were, I mean, they were insanely highly skilled. They made the best shirts mm-hmm. in the world at the time. And then you see those threads. It's it's insane how they managed it. Like my hands don't even go that way. I can't imagine, you know, how to, to make this kind of neat, really narrow thread. Like, and, and then I'm trying to see it from a perspective of an unskilled person, how it was a community building, but everything actually was secondary, I think, because the conditions were harsh and people Mm -hmm. were forced to somehow connect together because they had like their fingers pierced weekly, you know, Mm -hmm. like it was a bit different kind of, even like today it's hard, but then it was, it was even worse. So I don't know, like I was so biased with the knowledge that I found there. It was so interesting. And I also thought, why why is it interesting to me? Because I am privileged not to have it or not to participate and be this kind of unskilled artist fascinated by, you know, by the labor or, or things like that, which is quite, you know, natural order of the world. So it's still like, the, I think, yeah, this was the nicest research because it left me completely puzzled and with open-end questions. I don't, I don't have any answer to any of them. Redna, with the fashion aspect to your work, has that given you a, a new relationship with people who work in the industries as usual? I wor- when I started making the bag, I was actually working in a sewing workshop that was supposed to be for uh, refugee women to give them, like, to create employment for refugee women that are underskilled uh, in Belgium. Because Belgium also used to have like a textile industry and there is, um, I mean, there's quite some fashion being made in Antwerp and around. And with this project, like I stepped in as someone who was supposed to manage it, but the project kind of failed. It didn't really take off. So I started to make the bag in that con- context. But yeah, like again, like Ono was saying, sewing work is hard work. I mean, creating employment for refugee women is quite positive but if but it's also an underpaid and hard work so it was also like it was a weird we didn't know what to think about after all so that was one connection for sure and it was interesting to be in that in that context I feel like what I know of the fashion industry now is that it is in total crisis I think like I mean the whole world is in crisis but the fashion industry in particular is in crisis of what it is and how it can continue and I think part of what comes out of that is a lot of people individually making their own small brands and Instagram is something that allows for that to happen and I find that quite exciting so I follow a lot of yeah young people around the world that are making their own thing like seeing value also in found objects and you know collaging them together in a similar way that like I am doing I'm not saying that I invented invented this so yeah that's maybe like an exciting moment I think for sure and from what I understand from your practice you the sort of uh past and the kind of blurring of factual past and some doses of fiction in there could you tell us a little bit about that 
I mean, maybe like similar to what Mark was saying earlier, like I also gather a lot of like diary material or feel like I'm constantly like digesting something, like I experience something and I'm digesting it and I'm trying to work it through text, like in this way of like explaining it to myself or like telling a story to a friend. Like sometimes I tell the same dinner story five times and then I'm like, wow now i'm realizing this is actually very interesting and i make you know new connections and uh, this can also like end up in my practice so yeah like i feel like the past you know personal life it's kind of like all oh, mixes together i don't have like a direct way of how i work with it but i've just had this these experiences but i also like i tend to put myself into situations that like maybe the people around me don't necessarily uh, share with me like I went to business school in the pandemic for an example and then I feel the need to share that knowledge or share what I observed in those situations with the people around me so like I was making stories on Instagram and then I wrote was invited to write a text and then I was invited to read it so sometimes yeah things kind of unravel in that way Ona I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the tags that you sewed into your vinyl sculpture pieces okay so those tags well they also come from yeah it's probably secondhand store but i found it in my like friends and relatives closets it's the tags that have washed out so much that you don't really see the information anymore and some you see that there were letters so I I was just thinking about you know this kind of uh, not knowingness and the curiosity around the objects that we have because tags were not a very old uh, habit of humans because people knew what their items are made of like I mean clothings like cotton or wool or silk, it was basically free materials that people knew how to take care of them. But then when the rayon industry and this kind of blends of viscoses and like these kind of natural and artificial materials started to mix, people didn't know anymore how to take care of them. Can I iron them? Can I wash them, etc., etc.? And this is how tags came in. So when I was thinking about the idea of veneers, furniture it's also that you don't really know what's inside like that's just the surface that's pretending to be solid wood but then in the end you have this kind of meshed pulp of cheap woods inside and you don't really know what is exactly there so this is how my mind somehow connected these two and I just liked to place this kind of letter of someone that you no longer can can read it also was funny how uh, the tags washed out but the clothings you need quite some time to wash off the tag of nine so yeah it took me quite some time to collect them you've participated in quite a few artist residencies over the years do you have a particular approach you take to them do you enjoy responding to the site how much does it influence your practice well I don't know I am to be honest I'm also very skeptical somehow it depends. For example, in Derry, it was wonderful because it was not actually an artist in residence like establishment. So I lived in the city and there were not, you know, I wasn't living with other artists, basically just harassing the place in the bunch of foreigners, you know. So I really had to blend in and that was not blend in, but like I had the approach of a normal person, which was amazing. And when when you end up in these kind of artist colonies, in in some place it's a bit strange to me of course it's a wonderful opportunity but I also feel it's a strange time like the time freezes somehow like you're no longer in the place where you normally are and you have to keep everything suspended and you go to a new place and it's um, maybe it's just me but I feel the pressure of somehow relate to the place but the time is always too short even if it's few months like it's quite impossible so it's it's a strange thing I like to do it sometimes I like to be in this non-existent timeline somehow but I also find it a bit complicated is your practice generally studio based when you're in Vilnius or are you out on site I have a studio but I to be honest 
I hate sitting in the studio unless I really know what to do. Like I'm not the person who comes in the morning and starts like best ideas for me come when I walk, when I walk or I bike or I do something that has this kind of change of scenery. And I remember in the art school, we were told that you need to be based, studio based, like having a studio is the not need, but like having a studio is like the biggest merit whatsoever. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm not an artist. I can't be one. I'm like too restless and like like. But then we had like a visiting artist in the academy. It was Maria Loboda. And she said, oh, I hate being in a studio. Like I need to be out all the time. And I thought, okay, hello. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that having a studio is wonderful, but also thinking in terms of real estate, I would hate having to rent something, you know, like because you have a living space and then another space and you just can you still have 24 hours in a day so it's like you know it's a bit complicated I mean maybe shared studio is is an approach or something I'm using my dad's studio my dad's carpentry workshop it's good amazing and all dusty the way just the way I like it so it's really great that you've got access to that yeah other friends of mine do it differently like like for example there's one artist who is super studio based so all people who know him are actually quite invited to come for like two weeks or a month when they need to make something because I think he also has a big space and he feels lonely so which is also a nice nice way to do it Rebna, uh, do you have a particular relationship with studio spaces? And also, I'd love to ask you about gallery spaces, seeing as you're part of running one. Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Ona said. I think it is financially becoming harder and harder to have a home and a studio, especially in bigger cities of Europe. I was living in Berlin before I moved to Brussels. I mean, Berlin has some great programs with like cheaper studios also but like right now how I'm doing it is that I have quite a large apartment Brussels is relatively cheap so I have kind of all it's like all in one it's a little bit crazy but like the exhibition space that I run with my partner is in the apartment my studio is in my apartment we also we run a business we photograph fairs and galleries and that we do out of the apartment so it's like kind of insanely like everything in one you know like right now we're installing a show upstairs so we've like emptied it out fully and I've been like yesterday I was just trying to find places for all the books and all the bookshelves so I mean, I like this transformation about uh, like in this home mixed space. We also have a garden. We have like 100 square meter garden with like two apple, like apple tree, two cherry trees, like pear tree. Like I have, I have nothing to complain. So like I'm maybe I don't know if I'm meant to exist in this way. Like I often really need my own space and my own have a hard time thinking when there's other people around. So that's why I figured I found often residencies uh, quite tricky, like because you're adjusting to a new place. You have all these strangers around and you are like getting to know them. And that is like just all this interaction, all these new things have like influence on you. So I find it hard to work. So now I'm just trying to adjust myself to this way of living where I kind of departmentalize my life a bit. So like this week is for install and for like talking to the artist and doing these things. Next week is for something else. I don't have to stress this week about not being able to have many thoughts on my own because they will be happening next week. So yeah, this is kind of how I try to departmentalize it. And my relationship to the galleries or exhibition spaces I, I mean our space is like an artist run space we are like completely non-funded we're doing everything on our own we have sold work but that happens very rarely I try to because this space is a home and a public space at the same time I try to make it quite personal not over personal but I greet everyone at the door I introduce myself to everyone I try to have an overview in events of like oh, these people should maybe talk. Oh, these, you know, like, is everyone having a good time? I try to just host as well as I can. So, because I've so often been in gallery spaces, white cubes, like whatever, where that is just not the case. And many people feel very uncomfortable. And I think when these kind of social events take place in a gallery space slash home, they should be done well. How did you come up with the idea, like to make it in your home? Did you get a big apartment and you thought, okay, it's so lovely, let's do it? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, so I moved to Brussels in like the end of 2019 with my partner. And we had like thought of the idea of opening up an exhibition space. 
But then we found this apartment and like it has wooden panels and it has like uh, ceiling paintings and three fireplaces. It's like insane, you know, mm. like I was like, oh my God, we can afford this. So it kind of like it just invited itself to be an exhibition space. It was too good to mm. be true somehow. To be hidden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it needs to force me to be open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like that. And the pictures. I mean, they speak for themselves, like you see immediately. This is like this classics Brussels place. And what, what is your relationship to the city? Because whenever I'm in Brussels, I feel like, okay, this is the middle of Europe. Yeah. Like this is the center somehow and a capital, but also it has such a village feel to it in a way. And I think this combination is really interesting. What, what do you feel about it? Like it is a very weird city. It's very... I mean, it's extremely mixed. Like in the neighborhood we live in, there are 173 nationalities. As an Icelander, I added like another one. Um, <laughs> like it has, you know, it's like super mixed and it has this European kind of center in it that you're still kind of only aware of when you're there or when Joe yeah. Biden appears and like all of a sudden all the matters are closed. Yeah. So it's like, it is, yeah, it's very like, yeah, it's very villagey, but then still like this center feeling. Mm like half of Belgium all the Flemish people hate Brussels because they think it's so dirty which is also a funny like funny thing a lot of things don't work well it's like very dysfunctional um, which is kind of still I think coming from Germany like I like the chaos like my partner was like hey let's move to Switzerland and I was like no hell no I'm not <laughs> moving from Germany to Switzerland that's not a chance so I kind of like the chaos of it and people are so friendly, like the international community, like it's kind of, it's separated. Our communities are quite separate. There's the Flemish one, there's the Wallonian one, there's the people from Paris and, and then there's international one. And you maybe don't have that much to do with a French speaking one as an international one, unless you have direct connections to it. But the international community is so welcoming. Like I have like in Berlin, you know, I don't know how often I had to introduce myself again to the same people that I'd met five times and I was like here I am again you know I am the Paul Icelandic lady you know <laughs> spoken 20 times no no but like he and here it was like sorry I'm just ranting but here it was like people were like oh wow it's so great you're here and you you're opening a space that's so great like I'm yeah. never as welcome mm -hmm. and so it feels so good to add something new to the cultural scene when it feels appreciated yeah it's a whole other thing than opening something up in an already over full city mm -hmm. you know what i mean so even though brussels doesn't seem like it's very empty in that sense so it's really nice to hear that still like even in a in a city as active artistically as brussels i don't know maybe it's my uh, my impression of what i get from brussels but it seems like i don't know yeah if from an artistic point of view i think it's one of the best cities in in europe Mm -hmm. if not the best you know compared all the and and I was also wondering I'm, I think maybe also this question can go to Mark because as if you're running like an off space an artist run space how does it how does it influence your practice or vice versa like do you need some different kind of approach to to run other people's exhibitions or is it actually not that far from you know dealing with your own like I think, so I've been producing like a side job, like outside of like also performing was in the, in the last like 10 years is that I've been producing things. I produced like an art and music festival in Iceland. So I felt like I had these two personalities. One was like a creative one and one was like more a practical production one. And I found it hard to enter the creative one after like an intense production period. But now I'm trying to integrate these two sides of the brain into one because you also have to be able to produce your own work you have to be able to make them reach a finishing point you know you can't just like be like you know like in even though it's great to be in a daydreamy like whatever like space like constantly you have to reach that point so i think that's maybe like a little bit of a mind practice maybe a grown-up approach because yeah, Mark, you run you co-run a space, so is any of this feeling familiar to you? Or? Um, yeah, like I run a 
space called Men of Yoga Arts. Um, basically do um, public artworks, uh, events and, you know, site specific things in the public realm. And uh, we've a project coming up in August to September. Um, but yeah, I agree. Um, it's, a, it's a strange, <laughs> weird thing of being like, you know, you make your own work and you have your own practice. And then your role changes to like, uh, I suppose, facilitating ideas and trying to get, you know, make things happen. And I think maybe the true lived experience and collaborations that obviously helps, you know, and understanding what it feels like to be in that position. And also all those things of working with galleries in the past on art shows of like, you know, listening to the artist or, you know, asking questions and uh, also empathy, I think is a major one, you know, having empathy for the position uh, someone's in and uh, just being curious as well as uh, being an artist, curious about other artists, other mediums, as I would in my own practice about new ideas. And it's same when, you know, you're working with artists on the, you know, the space uh, I co-run, it's, I'm interested in ideas and people and, you know, new materials, new stuff. So there's similarities, but I, I, uh, yeah, I do, I, you know, trying to work it out sometimes are, they are, it seems to me, separate parts of my self, you know, one is my practice and then, and I don't know if that changes, it gets more integrated, but um, like I wouldn't, you know, some people say it's their practice, you know, doing that part, but I do see them as different entities within myself, but, you know, maybe, yeah, yeah, we've, <laughs> I don't know. But I agree with you with the dialogues. It's so like, it's so great to be, I mean, that's also why you keep on doing it because you're in an intimate dialogue with artists you've chosen to work with. So like that maybe also does have, have effect on your practice because you, yeah, you like their work and them. So like, I really like that part. Mm. Yeah, because I was, um, I was curating few shows uh, during like a few years ago. I don't do it anymore, but for me, it was the main, like it was interesting to work with people who work with different stuff because I already work with my own stuff, you know? So I don't get a chance to work with some other materials or performance or other kind of sound work. And it was really interesting to curate something else. But then, yeah, but then I, I understood that at some point I need to decide one or another. For me, it was like that, but I quite admire when people can somehow continue on having this kind of multiplicity in their in their persona i think it's it's impressive yeah yeah but i'm i will tell you i will not do this forever <laughs> <laughs> well uh, on that <laughs> we'll include links to all of the artist practices and also the uh spaces as well uh, that comes along with this podcast so i think we'll round up here Thank you again to our artists, Anna Yutsuta, Mark Beckeridge, and Rebna Hoenleifstotter. You can see Mark and Anna's solo exhibition at CCA, Derry London Derry, until the 2nd of July. And you can see documentation of the show in our archives at ccadld.org and on our socials at ccadld. To find out more about the artists, click the links in this episode's description. If you want to see more of the artist's work in the flesh, Rebna is performing at Sistema in Marseille with Lina Magnair on the 26th of August. And the tale opens with Marina Pinsky and Beckett MVN on the 2nd of July. You can see Honor's work at the National Museum in Vilnius as part of the Difficult Pasts Connected Worlds exhibition on until the 28th of August 2022. And both Honor and Mark are part of Melorassia exhibition with Kaunas Artist House until the 21st of August. And thank you for listening.